Oh, all right, you absolute legends. Welcome back to another episode of A Need to Read. My name is Ed. As always, I'm the host of this podcast. And today, I'm going to be doing a book review of Alan de Botton's How Proust Can Change Your Life. But before we get into that, just a few housekeeping things so we can keep the lights on and stuff like that. In the episode description, wherever you're listening to this, is a link to my Substack. Please sign up to that. It's where I can keep in contact with you via email with some educational content every single week. There will also be a prospect of a book club coming up on there. So if you want to be first to know about that, then please do sign up. The link is in the description. Also in the description are the details of the sponsors of the show. That is Athletic Greens and BetterHelp. BetterHelp, if you're thinking about therapy, if you're someone who's going through a tough time or feel like you're going through a tough time more often than not, and you're not able to manage your emotions in a way that you can just get about your daily business, then therapy might be something worth considering a little bit more seriously. With BetterHelp, it's super easy to sign up and to get yourself matched to a therapist that suits your needs. It takes a five to ten minute questionnaire, and from there, you'll be matched with a therapist within 48 hours. Financial aid is also available, and there are therapists available for all different types of therapy. So just check it out. Head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. And in addition to all of the benefits of just using BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off for being an a need to read listener. But let's get on with the show. Now, Marcel Proust, he has a full name of Valentin Louis Georges Eugene Marcel Proust. And he was born in 1871 died in 1922 and he wrote a book called In Search of Lost Time. He's a French novelist, critic, essayist, he wrote for newspapers and his book In Search of Lost Time was one of the most influential books of the 20th century. He didn't like to keep things short. I think nowadays when you write a novel, apart from A Little Life, which is the longest novel I've ever read, they're pretty short. But Marcel Proust had to split his book up into seven volumes and the total world count for the manuscript was 1.25 million words. Now, if you write that many words, you're kind of going to know what you're talking about. And luckily, Marcel Proust was a pretty intelligent guy. So much so that Virginia Woolf, who is one of England's favourite authors, I believe, if we look back in history, that is, who wrote Mrs. Dalloway and To the Lighthouse, said that reading Proust made her feel so inadequate that she just couldn't find anything wrong with it and it almost drove her to give up writing. She didn't give up writing, and fortunately so, because that turned her into one of the most influential authors of the 20th century, but she didn't finish the book until she'd finished writing the bulk of her books because she was just so intimidated with how good it was. Now, I haven't actually read In Search of Lost Time. I've got one of the volumes on my shelf here. I'm looking around at it now. And it's quite intimidating, if I'm honest, because it is so long. I'll explain a little bit about why it's so long in a moment, and you'll understand a little bit about Marcel Price as a person. But there is a lot to learn from this author, mainly because he is a walking, talking contradiction like most of us seem to be. I think the more I learn about people in history, the more I don't feel so bad for being a contradiction to myself at times. And Marcel Proust is no different. Now, the book is written by Alan de Botton, and Alan de Botton is one of my favourite authors. He has a very unique way of looking at things, and in this book, he's broken it down into a few different chapters of what you can actually learn from Proust. One of those is How to Love Life Today, 
another is how to read for yourself or how to take your time there's one that's how to suffer successfully which is pretty good how to express your emotions how to be a good friend how to be happy in love and finally one that i'm not going to spend too much time on today how to put books down and before i go into those chapters just a little bit about marcel Proust and his family now, he grew up in france and it was quite a turbulent time in france early 1900s there was a, there's a thing called the First World War. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but it was a pretty catastrophic time for France because they just got fucked all over the place, essentially. And that happened in the Second World War as well. It wasn't a good time to be living in France. But I think those kind of uncertain times have produced some amazing writers, like those from the existentialists, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre. There's lots of people who came from France when there was a load of shit going on and did amazing work. Marcel Proust is no different. He lived with his mum and his dad, and he actually lived with them for most of his life. He was a bit of a mummy's boy. And I wrote down in my notes that he was a little sissy mummy's boy, uh, but I don't think that that is very PC. But he did love his mother and value her over everyone else. And I think at a certain stage in your life, you have to stop doing that. And Marcel Proust didn't bother to do so. He came from a family of learned individuals, and I think... He wasn't quite in the French aristocracy. He wasn't quite that high up, but he did surround himself with a lot of well-to-do individuals. His dad was a favourite doctor, and he was a doctor who dealt with prostates. So much so that the prostectomy that he used to perform quite a lot was renamed by his friend the Proustectomy. Because, you know, people in France had good banter. He also had a brother who was a doctor, and in his novel, In Search of Lost Time, he... He kind of like presents this weird disdain, distaste, dislike for doctors, which is kind of weird considering his dad and brother are doctors as well, and he doesn't claim that he didn't get on with them at all. Anywhere throughout the book that I've just read, he may have done so. I, of course, don't know him. But what I want to do to begin with is read you a bit from the first chapter, which is How to Love Life Today. In the early 1900s, a newspaper that he was working for asked its writers what they think people would do if they were faced with their impending doom. If there was going to be a cataclysmic event that killed hundreds of millions of people, what would people do upon finding out about that? And he said, I think that life would suddenly seem wonderful to us if it were threatened to die, as you say. Just think of how many projects, travels, love affairs, studies, it, our life, hides from us, made invisible by our laziness, which certain of a future delays them incessantly but let all this threaten to become impossible forever how beautiful it would become again ah if only the cataclysm doesn't happen at this time we won't miss visiting the new galleries of the louvre throwing ourselves at the feet of miss x or making a trip to india the cataclysm doesn't happen we don't do any of it because we find ourselves back in the heart of normal life where negligence deadens desire and yet we shouldn't have needed the cataclysm to love life today. It would have been enough to think that we are humans and that death may come this evening. I think what he's trying to say there is YOLO, but he has a deep distaste for cliches, and I don't think YOLO was a thing back then. But of course, he's kind of stoic. He's like, yeah, guess what? I'm going to die, guys. You're going to die. Why don't we just make the most of it? And that, thinking about your mortality, I mean, I do it quite a lot not in a weird way it really helps you live life and not necessarily have regrets you know no regrets life 
it's the best kind of life. People have made it so fucking cliche and it's frustrating. But if you were to live a life where you truly were like, yeah, well, I am going to die at some point, so I guess I better just go and experience some things, you're probably not going to regret that much because, of course, your impending doom is on the way. Now, imagine that every day you fall asleep really not knowing if you're going to wake up again. You don't have that certainty that in the morning you're going to open your eyes. Of course, it's quite likely, but it's never certain. I don't really know if people pay too much attention to that. He actually sent that response, and then four months after it, he died, Um, which is weird because he couldn't have predicted that, even though he had kind of been predicting his death for about 15 years. So he's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. But he caught a cold that went to bronchitis and pneumonia and died at the age of 51 because that's kind of what happened throughout history. It's people caught colds and it got worse and then they died. So luckily now we have things like paracetamol and what other things you have when you have a cold. Proust didn't have that. In the other chapter, he says how to read for yourself. And he talks a lot about the characters in books that you ascribe personalities of people that you know. And he says you make every book your own. And when we think about novels, we ascribe certain characters, the characteristics of people in our own life. It may help us communicate with them and it can help us recognise the parts in them that are broken, much like the parts in us. And this helps us view the world with more compassion. I'm not even joking, guys. I just read that off my notes, but I actually wrote that. He didn't. So, yeah, you can thank me for that, not Marcel Proust. Um, Yeah, that's my summary of what Alan de Botton said. But I was pretty impressed that I wrote that. I forgot. I did my notes earlier today not just now and the next chapter that we're going to talk about is how to take your time now i did mention earlier that he was pretty renowned for writing lots of words and there's a page in the book that shows one of the sentences that he wrote and if you were to lay it on a single line it would stretch for four meters and he was known for these kind of long drifting sentences and chapters and an editor once wrote to him now bearing in mind he turned out to be one of the most influential authors of the 20th century The guy wrote to him and said, I may be dense, but I fail to see why a chap needs 30 pages to explain how he tosses and turns in bed before sleeping. Well, maybe that editor was dense because it turns out people wanted that kind of shit. But he did, throughout different stages of the book, according to Alan de Botton, really kick the arse out of things. He said you should never ever paraphrase anyone. So if you're writing non-fiction, don't paraphrase someone. Never miss an opportunity of quoting others when what they say is certainly more interesting than what you've said. That's Proust, not me. But I'm all for that. I think you see it online today. No one gives credit where credit is due for writing. And it's a bit of a shame because, well, I'll give you a good example of this. Jay Shetty, Google this if you don't believe me, but Jay Shetty, when he first started out, didn't give credit to anybody and it helped him get famous. And he never said sorry for it. Total douchebag. You know? Well, maybe he's not a total douchebag. He does help a lot of people, but I'm not a fan of Jay Shetty. But back to Proust. Essentially says, never rush anything. What will be the point? If you need to give someone credit and it takes you a little bit more time to do so, then you do it. If you need to explain something in depth, if you need to go into immense details to explain someone something to someone, don't oversimplify it. Because language is all we have, really. So when you have to explain something, use more words. That was a very Proustian thing to do. And he was very famous for saying, N'allez pas trop vite, 
no, Nalepatrovi. Nalepatrovi. I could be wrong. I'm, I don't speak French very well, but it essentially means don't go too fast. He doesn't want you to be going too fast. He wants you to take your time. And this is in all areas of life. Imagine if you took more time in conversations with the people around you to actually pay attention to them as opposed to just rushing through it. I'm sure your life would be better, or your connections at least would be, and that does lead to a pretty good life. Now, one of my favourite chapters was How to Suffer Successfully, mainly because he just kicks the arse out of the idea that you should not suffer alone. Prowse was ill all his life. He had so many things wrong with him. Asthma. Asthma used to be a big problem back then, as in they didn't have inhalers, so there was no treatment for it. Think of how many people you know who carry an inhaler around with them, or at least you used to know at school. All those people 100 years ago would have been fucked in the nicest way possible. So I guess you're lucky that you live in 2022 if you've got asthma. But he had asthma and it killed him all his life. Really fucked him. It's probably why he died from a cold, actually, when you think about it. Just putting two pieces of information together there. You are welcome. Now, when I say he didn't suffer alone, he liked to spend a lot of time alone but he liked to write letters. He used to write letters to his mum in the next room because, of course, he's his little mummy's boy. But one of his letters was a letter to his mum to ask his father why it stung when he peed. He was 31 years old. And I guess, of course, they didn't have Google there. But if it started to sting while I peed, I don't think my dad would be the first one I go to. And I know that my dad's not a doctor, but there are just certain things that you don't talk about with people in your family. And I guess STIs would be one of those things because burning sensation when you pee, of course, once again, not a doctor, but I think that kind of means you've got something wrong with your wiener and that you might have caught that by doing the dirty. Think about that one. It's another reason why Prowse is weird. I'm making him out to be a bit of a weirdo when actually he's a very, very clever guy. One of the things he said was his only consolation when he was sad was to love and to be loved. And there is absolutely something in that. And if I'm honest, from what I've read about Proust, it seems that he was sad kind of more often than not. But in quite a happy way. I guess accepting things about yourself when you're poorly all the time is kind of a good thing to do. He says you essentially have to just accept that some things are inevitable. And asking your body to take pity on you is like trying to speak to an octopus. I paraphrased him there, which he would hate of me to do, but he is dead, so it doesn't matter. I think, now I, I haven't suffered greatly with my body. I've had quite a few injuries. I've been ill a few times, but nothing terminal, or nothing like truly terrible. But in that situation, if you start asking why, if you're asking why your body's doing this to you, it's not going to get you anywhere. Is it? I guess it might be good for a little bit of a moan, and of course, venting is a great idea. But truly thinking that your body needs to take pity on you and that you can't be bothered to handle it, I don't think that's the best idea. And one thing we have to remember is that pain is a pretty good teacher. When you go through suffering, I mean, it helps, right? And one thing Prowse said, and he was quite stoic in this, he said that happiness is good for the body, but grief develops the strength of the mind. You know that whole, like, tough times never last, tough people last. Or that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I know it's cliche, but let's face it, all the shittest times in your life are probably going to be the times when you grow the most, right? 
and we're not always focused on growth. Sometimes it's nice just not to suffer, but suffering is like our chance to understand reality. Because reality, if we're being nihilistic about it or existential about it, it is suffering. You'll go through all different types of suffering in your life. Illnesses, betrayals by people you love, emotional fucking torment. You can either accept that and move on and be stoic and be Proustian about it. Or you can just blame other things and blame the weather uh, and anything else under the sun that tickles your fancy. And I think when it comes to suffering successfully, doing so without contempt for the situation is a good idea. Now there is a lot more in these pages than just what I'm talking about, of course. And you can learn from Proust. Even if you don't read this book, just some of the stuff in this podcast should be good enough. But one of the chapters, which is how to be a good friend, is kind of tongue-in-cheek because I don't think he actually liked people. He wrote quite a lot about how people are pretty terrible and that you can never be yourself around other people. He said that we kind of fashion ourselves to another person and show up as a self that they would want to see. And it's kind of like that quote that's like, I am not who you think I am. I am not who I think I am. I am who you think I think I am. It's quite a confusing quote, but it just goes to show the inauthenticity of living as a human. But even though he didn't like people, kind of like me, he sat with each of his friends individually at dinner. And lots of his friends, after he died, wrote stuff about him. I think they all kind of jumped on the bandwagon and were like, oh, let me tell you what it's like to be friends with Proust. Um, And a lot of them said that throughout a dinner party he would sit with someone at the starter he'd sit with someone in between the starter and the main and then he'd sit with someone at the main and he'd give equal bits of attention to each of his friends which kind of showed that he cared but then when he wrote about it he essentially thought that he wasn't cut out for friendship and mainly because he thought too many unkind things about them he said that they were true but they were unkind and I guess that kind of means like no one's perfect right even your best friends you can see faults in And you might think things about them that are terrible. Or you might think that they're terrible sometimes. But of course they're your mate. And you can tell them they're terrible. Or you can just let them get on with it. And that's what friendship's about, isn't it? Sometimes people annoy you. And you're bonded by friendship. And you say, hey, you're annoying. But I don't give a fuck. I think you're alright deep down. And that's what matters. However, Prowse didn't think like that. He thought that he was... Something was wrong with him because he didn't think anyone was perfect. Even though we should all know, listening to this, that no one's perfect and we shouldn't expect anyone to do so. It might also have something to do with the fact that he didn't like himself at all. He said his self-esteem was poor all the way throughout his life. So to give you my summary on what he thinks it takes to be a good friend, it's knowing that your friends are never going to be perfect It's about acknowledging that in yourself and not giving yourself a hard time for it. Knowing that people are going to think that you're imperfect and your friends aren't always going to have shining things to say about you. There is some weird obsession on the internet at the moment with people who just want friends who are going to encourage and support them all the time. When really, friends can't do that. Friends have their own lives to go about. They don't need to support absolutely fucking everything you do. But when you're with them... It's about good conversation. It's about sitting with your friends at dinner, sitting with someone for the starter, sitting with someone for the main, and giving people your attention. That is how 
you become a good friend. Now, what he says on love can be summarized very briefly to essentially don't take it for granted. Don't take anything for granted. An interesting story from this chapter is that he got one of the first 30,000 phones in France in the 1900s and he used it to listen to the opera live. And something he said about the phone was a supernatural instrument before whose miracle we used to stand amazed and which we now employ without giving it a thought to summon our tailor or order an ice cream. Imagine the device that you're probably listening to this podcast in coming to the world in the 1970s. People would think it was alien, but we take this shit for granted. We've literally got a computer in our pocket. That's not to say that you should use it all the time, but I do think being in genuine awe of the fact that the technology is so advanced nowadays, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's not, being in awe of it, I think is definitely a good thing. And that goes for your relationships. and That's love within friendships as well, is to be in awe of these people, imperfect people that we're talking about. They're just people, aren't they? It's interesting that they are the way they are, so let's not take that for granted. There are 7 billion people on this planet and there are very few of them who you're going to really get on with, right? The fact that someone else is actively choosing to be your friend or to be your lover is great. So let's not take that for granted. That's how you can be happy in love, is being grateful for it. Now the last chapter that Alan DeBotton goes into is how to put books down. I don't want to go into that. Who wants to put books down? I need you guys to be picking up books. Then we can all be friends. I need people to read and then we can all be friends. But he says, if you're going to start idolising authors, that's when you need to put books down because you're getting lost in the work that they've done. They are not their characters and they're not their books. And every word that you read is edited and gone over with a fine-tooth comb. If you're starting to idolise an author or thinking they're amazing, and I see this so many different book accounts, I also do it. I love people like Oliver Burtman, but I've spoken to him and he's pretty sound but people put these authors shit authors basically on a like a moral pedestal and they shouldn't do so because it's it's tough to say right but there are few different types of books out there there are books that are written by scammers that I don't even think are written by them I say scammers, they're hardly ripping money off of people, but they are claiming work is their own when it's not. And they collect these, like, cult followings. Right, I'm going to say it. I'm going to throw it out there. Stephen Bartlett, I don't like his book anymore. I liked it at the time, but I've, in hindsight, I don't think it's great. There is something about the work that he does that gets my back up. I don't know what it is. I think... Too many people idolise him. And I think it's a bit weird. If you were a hater of mine, you'd be like, well, of course, you're just jealous. And you may be right. There are things about his life that I wouldn't mind having. Loads of money would be pretty sound, but I'm not that bothered that I've not got it. But so many people are dick-riding Stephen Bartlett. It's a joke. People think he's a genius. No offence to the guy, but he's not a genius. He's smart, and he's worked everything pretty well. But he's not a genius, and I do think everyone needs to get off his dick for a little bit. Just give him a breather, you know? Same with people like Gary V. whilst we're at it. Gary V, Tony Robbins, Stephen Bartlett, uh, 
Brian Tracy, the guy who wrote Eat That Frog, whoever wrote The Secret, these people amass cult followings. And it's it's just so hard to understand. I don't quite get it. I won't spend too much time thinking about it, but it is difficult to understand. But that could literally just be down to personal preference, and I could be totally wrong about all that. Isn't that glorious? I could be totally wrong about the stuff that I've just said. Just in case uh, anyone wants to quote me on anything I've just said, I'm open to changing my mind on any of that. But that's it. That's the book. How Prowse Can Change Your Life. If you were to read it in full, I think you might enjoy it. I gave it three stars out of five. Only because I haven't read In Search of Lost Time. And I'm not going to read it just yet. Because it's kind of scared me a little bit. Reading Alan de Botton's book. Grabbing In Search of Lost Time off my shelf at the moment. The words are very small. And the book is about 430 pages long. It's a long one. It will take a lot of commitment, but based on how much people have loved it and how much Alan de Botton loves it, I think I'm going to have to read it soon. So the book that I've just been reviewing is How Prowse Can Change Your Life by Alan de Botton. I gave it three stars. I probably would usually give it three and a half if I was being a little bit more generous, um, but I'm trying to be less generous nowadays because I don't want to idolise authors like uh, Alan de Botton. Do I? I'm such a hypocrite. God, being a human is difficult, everyone. You can't say one thing and then actually act in the other way. There's there's no way that you can escape hypocrisy. So everything I said about Stephen Bartlett, I'm sorry, I'm a hypocrite. And everyone who likes Stephen Bartlett, sorry about that as well. That is the end of the podcast. We're all absolute legends. Thank you so much for listening. The podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Athletic Greens. Information on both of those companies who I like working with, is in the description of this episode. But most importantly, please sign up to my Substack so I can help you learn cool things that I think are cool. And hopefully get you involved in a book club someday soon. Love you, bye.